Turn your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 1. Last week we just did kind of a basic uh, introduction to uh, the Gospel of Matthew and talked a little bit about, about its background and the setting and whatnot. And uh, today we're going to go ahead and forge ahead and look at the first 17 verses. And uh, in uh, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Matthew, his first chapter in the book is called Just a List of Names. <laughs> so I borrowed that this morning. And because uh, when you read through the first 17 verses, you get to the end and you go, okay, what, what is this? What did I just read? Um, but as you recall, the, the book of the Gospel of Matthew reveals Jesus as who? The king, right? The king. And it begins by presenting Jesus' family tree as in this royal genealogy that we're going to read through this morning. Um, and if this king, Jesus, is to be heralded as a king, uh, then it must start with the proof that he truly is a king. If you can't prove that Jesus is the king, then let's just pack our bags and go home. And so what we're going to look at this morning is how this is proof that he comes from the royal line, which was needed for kingship. There was a, a royal line in Israel, and it came through David. And in 2 Samuel, you don't have to turn there, but in, in chapter 7, um, God said to David through the prophet Nahum that it would be through his loins that a king would come. And that this king would ultimately reign in Israel and that he would ultimately set up an eternal kingdom. Well, unfortunately, uh, Solomon never saw that fulfilled. And so you had the nation of Israel, the Israelites waiting and waiting and waiting for the one who was born of the seed of David to fulfill all the prophecies uh, that the Old Testament talks about concerning this king, this Messiah. The unfortunate thing is most of the state of Israel is still waiting. <laughs> uh, it's unfortunate. But if Jesus is to be that king, it has to be established, first of all, that he has the right to reign. You know, if, if someone came in here this morning and I said... Uh, Hi, George, how you doing? And George said to me, it's King George to you. I said, excuse me? I'm a king. I wouldn't just say, oh, okay, good day, King George. I'd say, prove it. You know, I'm not going to call you King George. Who do you think you are? Until he proved it. And so it's important to understand that, you know, we call Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that today. But we're going to see this morning that if Jesus is to be that king, it has to be established that he has the right to reign. And that he comes from and descends from the proper genealogy. You know, everybody likes to know where they've kind of come from. Have you ever done one of those family trees and, you know, maybe search back in the history of your family and, and kind of figured out who's who and everything and... and uh, I remember growing up, I, I came from the town, a uh, small town of Pennsylvania outside of Whamsport, Pennsylvania, and the name of the town was uh, Montoursville, Pennsylvania. 
And uh, I remember, when I think it was in high school, they were telling family stories or whatever, and we were making fun of each other's middle names. Mine's Howard. And uh, they said, you know, one of the one of our, I, th- I think it was my grandfather or great-grandfather, his name was uh, Montour Converse. I thought, wow, I never did find out if he was named after the town, which would have been pretty sad because it wasn't that great of a town, <laughs> or if uh, the town was named after him. Uh, who knows? But everybody likes to go back in their history and find out something about um, their family history, their family tree. Well, that's what this allows for us to do this morning. And I think we can all agree here that we all believe that all Scripture is inspired, right? All Scripture is given to us for edification, for teaching, for reproof, all those things. And, and that means all. It doesn't mean when you come to a section like this that you go, wow, I, I don't know if I can, can, can deal with this or not. Because there's, there's some interesting things in this uh, little genealogy that's, that we're going to read. But it's, it's also interesting to me that, that part of working through this can be kind of difficult. It can be cumbersome. You know, is it just a list of names or is there something else there? Uh, I want to read this illustration out of his commentary. It says, years ago, a Bible teacher was riding through New York State on a train on his way to New England. And he went to the dining car for dinner. A man sat down across from him who, as it turned out, was an atheist. Finding this, his companion, or, or finding that his companion was a Bible teacher, the atheist began to rehearse the difficulties that he perceived in Scripture. He cited one difficulty after the other, but the man who was being attacked went right on eating. He was eating New England cod. You ever had New England cod? It's a very bony fish. And as he ate, he pushed all the bones aside. Finally, the atheist looked at him and said, well, what do you do with all these difficulties that I've just explained to you in the Bible? The Bible teacher plainly looked at him across the table and says, I do with the difficulties just as I am doing with the cod. I eat the meat and I put the bones aside for some fool to choke on. Now, you know, we don't want to take that too seriously. It doesn't mean that we don't want to work through difficulties in the scripture. But sometimes when we see difficulties, we, ah, does this mean it's not true or whatever? Um, well, that's not, that's, that's not the case because all scripture is inspired of God. Let's read the first 17 verses. I'll read them for you. You can follow along and uh, pray for me as we do this. Uh, I once worked with a pastor. Whenever he came to a name he could not, or a word he could not pronounce, he just said hard word. Literally. So he'd be reading along, he'd just hard word, and he'd just continue like it was nothing. I thought that was the weirdest thing. But let's see if we can get through this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot... Uh, Solomon and Solomon begot Boaz by, Rohab, by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot uh, Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot 
uh, Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, and Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah, and Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shetiel, and Shetiel, I guess it is, and Shetiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Elihud, and Elihud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Nathan, and Nathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the son, or the, 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 the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. I was going to ask you to read that this morning for me, Matt, but I uh, didn't, just couldn't do that to you. Uh, but we see these names, and it's, it's, it's like, wow, one name after the other. Does this have a meaning? Well, sure it does. And we're going to be looking this week and next week about some of the things that we're going to see in this list of names. It's interesting to me that there's four women named, besides Mary, and uh, that really is going to show us some of the, the grace of God. But there, these genealogies that they dealt with back then were very important in Israel. They had a significant factor. A lot of people value their pedigrees, where they come from. Well, um, you know, if anybody's going to be presented as the king, it's, it's absolutely necessary that you have the evidence to prove it. And so the, the genealogies were very important to the Jews. And they were important in four different ways. And you can see there, I kind of wrote them out there for you. First of all, tribal location. You know, remember, they didn't have Google. They didn't have MapQuest. They didn't have all that stuff back then. So after the conquest of Canaan, it was essential to, dis to discern where each family's place of residence, according to its tribe, was going to be. And because all the land was divided into the tribal boundaries, it was important, in, in Numbers 26 through 30, and 35 speak about that, how... how uh, one had to know his tribe and his family and his, his father's house so he could be identified with the right location of the land. <coughs> well, secondly, so the tribal location is the first reason it was something of significance. Um, secondly, it had to deal with the transaction of land. See, under certain circumstances back then, according to the book of Ruth, you remember when we went through the book of Ruth on Wednesday nights, you remember in chapters 3 and 4, there was a transfer of property that was going on. And it required accurate knowledge of the family tree. They had to figure out, well, who's, whose is this and who can we give this to and all, all that sort of thing. So that they could keep the land within the tribe. So they had to be known, <coughs> they had to know their certain pedigree in order to make some business transactions of land. Um, that's just the way it was back then. The third thing these, these genealogies became rather important were the testing of lineage. And basically, in Ezra 6, 
262, it says this, these sought their registration among those who were reckoned by genealogy. And what that's saying is after the 70 year Babylonian captivity, you remember, many of the Jews started coming back to Israel. Remember, they, they started coming back. And many of these Jews that came back to Israel, they were claiming to be priests. They were saying, hey, we're from the tribe of Levi. We're priests. However, because God takes that very serious, who's going to be a priest and who's not, only the Levites could serve as priests. In Numbers 1 and 1 Samuel 13, it talks about that. The people who claimed to be priests had to prove it on the basis of their genealogy. They couldn't just say, oh, you're a priest? Okay, here you go. Here's the temple. Go at it. I mean, back then, that, I mean, that, that could really uh, cause the wrath of God to fall. So they were very careful about all that. And they used the genealogies to prove who was a priest and who wasn't. And if they found the necessary registration, then they were included in the priesthood. If they didn't, they were put out of the priesthood. So the, Jew, the Jews needed to know their, their pedigree. They needed to understand this exchange, for exchange for land, for tribal location, and for also their, their priestly uh, identification. Well, later in the time of the, the Romans, what happened was they used the genealogy for another purpose. <laughs> Much like our government, when we have a, a census or something like that, Usually the, the IRS has their hand in that somewhere. Well, they used it also for taxation purposes. And it's interesting when you begin to read through the, the New Testament over in the Gospel of Luke. Just turn over there real quick. Luke chapter 2. Sorry, I'm fighting a chest cold and I'm having a hard time not coughing up here. Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> And let's just read verses uh, 1 through 4. You remember this? It's, we read it every Christmas. And, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be what? Registered. Okay? Census. And this census took place while uh, Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of who? David. Okay. So they used that for taxation purposes. And so these genealogical identifications were, were still being made in the time of Christ. And even the writer Josephus, one of the, the church historians, he, he supports the use of these files, these, these genealogies, as part of uh, a Jewish culture uh, of the time, around the time of Christ. So it was, it was part of their, their culture at that time. So it was a very common practice. Um, and the Jews, as I said, value their pedigree. You remember Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? And he says, God forbid. For I also am what? He says, I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He recounts his lineage for us. It was very important to them. And to the Jewish people, this was just a, a very important issue. And this accounts for the existence of at least 
50 genealogies in the Old Testament. If you're like me, when you started reading the Bible right after you got saved, you started in Genesis, and you got to one of these lists of these names, and you just went, what is this about? And you tried to read through it, but you just couldn't see so close. And you start over, and you know, you're thinking you have to start at the beginning and read this like a book. Until um, someone came along and said, you know, you can read the New Testament. You don't have to just plow through the Old Testament. You can use both of them. And, and uh, that was always hard for me to get through those genealogies at that time. But it was a very important issue back then. Um, and there were reasons, uh, as we've seen, not only in determining the royal and the priestly lines, but also in determining the transfer of property and, and other things they'd use it for. And so all of this, basically, today, it has changed. All, the, all this, what we're talking about right now, has changed. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, but basically, the, the Jewish people have absolutely no record of their tribal ancestry. Because all those records virtually vanished, and, and no Jew existent in the world today could ever ultimately prove, say in a court of law, himself to be the son of David. That's interesting to me. Because when they destroyed everything back then, it was, it was just wiped out. So you ask yourself the question, could anybody claiming to be a Messiah today prove it? Could he go back in his genealogy? Well, no, because the, the Jewish ancestry is not there. The genealogical records are not there. They couldn't, they couldn't prove it. So anybody claiming to be the Messiah today, they'd never be able to prove it. There are some Orthodox Jews who still believe the Messiah is going to come. And the, the problem they face, and they'll tell you this, is that there'll never be any uh, lineal way to prove that. So it's kind of neat how God set this up. Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claim to David's throne. That's it. It ends there. If he's not the Messiah, then nobody could ever be the Messiah. They couldn't prove it, at least. Now, there's a, there's a lot of implications, as I said, about this genealogy, but... Um, in this genealogy, in Matthew, we have a descending record, starting from Abraham, it says there, and down through David and Joseph, all the way down to Jesus. If you turn over to the, the uh, third chapter of Luke, you're going to read that genealogy and say, hey, this isn't the same. What's going on? I thought the Bible was supposed to agree. Well, in the third chapter of Luke, we also have a genealogical record, but the genealogy in Luke is reversed. It ascends, starting with Jesus and going back through Mary all the way back to Adam, which is kind of interesting. See, whereas Matthew's genealogy is coming down from uh, Abraham and Joseph, Luke's traces back Jesus through Mary. Well, see, one begins with Jesus, the other ends with Jesus. That's the difference. But regardless of their variations, it's as if the Spirit of God says, you know what, any way you slice and dice this, this is the one who has to be the king. This is it. There's only one. 
Well, the right of royalty comes through Joseph. We see this. This is still kind of a little bit of background information, but I think it's important to kind of lay this foundation. Another distinction you see between Matthew and Luke's gospel, I wrote it there, I think, in the box there for you, somewhere on the notes, is that, uh, that, that Matthew is showing the legal descent of Jesus as the king of the Israel. Legally, in a court of law. That's, that's how that would be proven. Well, Luke is showing the, the lineal descent. In other words, Matthew has the royal line kind of mapped out for us, but Luke shows us the bloodline. And the difference is explained in that the royal line was always passed through the father. It always went through the father. The father possessed the right to rule. They never had uh, queens in Israel. It was always the father who had the right to rule. But in spite of the fact that Jesus had no natural father, <laughs> he has the right to reign that belonged to David because Joseph was his what? His legal father. Stepfather, but his legal father. And so Matthew follows this royal line through David and his son Solomon. On the other hand, when you look at the line through Mary, one of David's other sons was Nathan, as you know, and through whom Mary's line is traced. And Jesus was also a descendant of David through Mary. See, whereas Joseph, through Joseph, he was legally heir to the throne of David, but through Mary, it was important that he had ties to the bloodline of David. You say, well, why didn't he have a bloodline through Joseph? You remember, Mary was what? A virgin. <laughs> Jesus didn't possess Joseph's blood. So it's interesting how God kind of arranges all this. And so you see this child of Mary, Jesus was the only legal heir of David through Joseph. Matthew 1.16, it says there, And Jacob begot Joseph, what? The husband of Mary. Notice it doesn't say, And Jacob begot Joseph, the father of Jesus. <laughs> doesn't say that. Why? Because he wasn't Jesus' father. According to the blood connection. But he was his father by adoption. He was his stepson. He, he, he was legally his father. So Joseph was not the real father of Jesus. He was the husband of Mary. And if you look throughout Scripture, you never see where the Bible calls Joseph the father of Jesus. Because he wasn't. Furthermore, you look there at verse 16 and it says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And you say, well, what are you making such a big deal? It's just interesting to me that God's word is so exact. Right down to the gender of words that are being used. There in verse 16, when he says, the husband of Mary, of whom? In the original language, you can say that in a masculine way, referring to a man, or you can say it in a feminine way, referring to a woman. Guess which one is used here? The feminine clearly showing that he was not born of Joseph. 
but Jesus was clearly born of Mary. But he was Joseph's legal child. Because if you're adopted into a family, you legally had all the rights and all the privileges that a natural child had. What kind of family would it be if you adopted somebody in your family and said, well, you don't have any rights to the other kids? It's one thing I've always made it a account when, when uh, we're together as a family and, and, uh, and introducing Ambika, my wife, and Crystal, my daughter. People always go, this is your daughter? I'm like, yeah, it's my daughter. And they look at Ambika, and they look at Crystal, and they look at me. <laughs> and they go, what? How does this work? And then you got to explain yourself. But I never, I've never referred to Crystal as my stepdaughter. Because to me, she's not. And see, that's, that's, that's an important factor here, is that, you know what? He, he was, uh, had all the legal rights that a natural child had. So in every way possible, no matter how you cut this thing, Jesus had the authentic God-given right to rule. His father was the one who granted him the royal line, and his mother was the one who granted him uh, uh, the... Uh, the bloodline. So it's, it's important to understand that going into this. It's interesting that in Luke's genealogy, in, in chapter 3, verse 23, it says this, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. So it's, it's important to understand that Jesus was considered by everybody to be whose son? Joseph's son, legally. Even though he was not his son by real birth. That's why in the day, many people thought that, that at the, the time, at least at the time of, of Jesus' birth, that, hey, this is a child who is, is the result of some illicit affair. You remember even Joseph's first response when he found out Mary was pregnant. Well, he sought to put her away privately. You know, how do we do this? What do we do here? And it took God's intervention to say, hey, wait a minute. Everything's okay here. I'm taking care of this. So Jesus was considered by everybody to be the son of Joseph, even though he was really not the son by true birth bloodline. Um, but they called him the son of Joseph because Joseph was his legal father. That's how it works. There was never any question about that at all. Uh, in Luke 4.22, even during his ministry, he was known as the son of Joseph. It says, And all bore him witness, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? It's interesting that it goes that way, but it never goes the other way. You never see anywhere calling uh, uh, Joseph the father of Jesus. But it's always, Isn't this Joseph's son? Well, the, the second thing that's interesting here is we look at this list of names. As you look in Matthew chapter 11 and 12, chapter, or, or, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, the Benadryl's taking its effect, I can tell. Uh, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the same time they were carried into Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot uh, Shittiel, and Shittiel begot Zerubbabel, okay? Well, what is that all about? There's, a, there's, there's something in s Scripture that is, is rather interesting here. 
See, through Jesus, even though Jesus was in David's line through Joseph, okay, if he would have been in David's line in a blood connection, he would have been basically uh, rejected as king because there's a curse on the line of Jeconiah. So it's interesting that though, da though Jesus was David's line through Joseph, he would have been unable to reign because there was a divine curse that had been placed upon Jeconiah's offspring. And in Jeremiah 22.30, you can see that. Jeremiah 22.30. Jeremiah pronounced God's judgment upon Jeconiah. Here's what happened. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Write this man childless, speaking of Jeconiah, a man that shall not prosper in his day. And then he says this, For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David. So it's interesting to me that if... David or Joseph would have been the blood father of Jesus, that would have disqualified him from being the Messiah. God covers every angle here, folks. He never could have sat upon the throne of David because of the curse. And yet he had to be the legal son of Joseph to have the right to sit on the throne. But because he was bypassed the blood, he wasn't under that divine curse. So God had devised this plan, which is interesting, by which Jesus would be the legal heir to the throne, though at the same time, he would not be, it would not be in the bloodline of David descending through Jeconiah. And God did that, by the way, through the virgin birth of Christ, bypassing the uh, cursed bloodline of Jeconiah, and yet still maintaining his right legally to be the king. That's why when we come to God's Word and we look at the, the, some of the, the minutiae that we're looking at, it's fascinating to me that God would even think to cover these details. God guarded every single detail without contradiction through the, the miracle of the virgin birth. And so the reason for this genealogy is to present, it's not just a list of names, but to present the fact that this is the one who has the right to reign, Jesus Christ the Messiah. And, uh, you know, it may take a long time for people to kind of unscramble the importance of all this. But, to be honest, all, all the Jewish people have to do is to, to read it, and they got the message. Um, they knew the Old Testament. They knew about the, the curse of Jeconiah. They knew about the Davidic line. They knew about the importance of genealogies and one's right to uh, reign and how to establish that. They knew all that. And Matthew utilizes these verses, because remember, he's writing mainly to a Jewish audience here, to show that Jesus had the right to be the king. Matthew begins his genealogy there in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word book, Biblos, is what we get, get, get the Bible from. can mean a book, a list of names, a record. It literally means a book of the beginnings about Jesus Christ. And this is really, this gospel is a story about how Jesus Christ came to be and the record of his origin, his ancestry. And it's a story of how, how Jesus ministered on earth, lived and died and was resurrected. The name Jesus Christ 
beyond just being a personal identification for him there, conveys basically a couple roles that he fulfills. First of all, Jesus, we, we know, means what? That word, Joshua, means what? Yeah, the Lord is salvation. God is salvation. All right, that's what his first word, the first meaning of his, his that word Jesus means. In Matthew one twenty one, it says, He shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name what? Jesus. Why will we call him Jesus? Because he'll save his people from their sins. And secondly, not only is he the Savior, but he's also the Christ, which means the anointed one. He was anointed, divinely commissioned, you might say, as prophet, priest, and king by the Father. And so this genealogy in this book is, is about the beginnings of one whom will save, also who was an anointed prophet, priest, and king. And we understand why it's important to kind of establish the fact that Christ had the right to rule and to reign based on his genealogy, based on his ancestry. And in spite of all these things, people of the day still mocked him. The response wasn't one of, oh, wow, we got our Messiah. You, know, you may be sitting here today and say, well, this is all good and fine, but I still don't believe Jesus is the Christ, and I still don't feel like committing my life to him. And Hey, that's your that's your you know that's your prerogative. Only God can do that work in your heart to open your eyes to see the truth. In Matthew 13, turn over there quickly and as we close here. Matthew 13. Just want to read a couple of these verses. I mean, can you imagine being God come to earth, established as the the king, the ruler? and to be treated this way. And yet I think a lot of times in our own lives, even as Christians, I think that we don't give Christ the proper place. Uh, Matthew 13, look at what it says in verse 54. Matthew 13, verse 54, when he had come to his own country. So he, he, he had a homecoming. He went home. He taught them in their synagogue. And that they were astonished. Whenever Jesus taught, people were astonished because uh, he was the master teacher. He was the, the, the living water, the bread, the light. He says, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? You can almost sense the sarcasm. And his brothers, James... Say Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were what? What's it say in verse 57? They were offended at him. They were offended at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Over in John chapter 7, verse 27, when Jesus came down to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews became upset at him and, and uh, what he had said. 
And they responded in verse 27 of John 7, Nevertheless, we know this man from where he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth from where he is. What are they saying? They said, hey, we know this, this guy, Jesus. He can't be the Christ because we know where he came from. He's some country bumpkin from up there in Nazareth, up north. I mean, after all, it was hard for them to understand, beloved, that, that Christ, the anointed king of God, would, would, would come from a place like Nazareth. They thought, surely, if God was going to send us a king, he would come through where? Through Jerusalem. I mean, such a thought was just mind-blowing to them. He said, basically, he's a nobody from nowhere. That was their attitude toward him. And in verses 4 and 40 and 41, find this mixed reaction to Jesus. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet prophesied by Moses in the Pentateuch. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Once again, they had a hard time discerning what was going on here. Over in the, the, uh, the, the Gospel of John chapter 8, in verse 41 and 48, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we're not born of fornication. <laughs> we have one father, even God. Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a demon? In other words, you're, you're demon-possessed, result of a fornication that came from a nowhere town of nobody. You're, you're, you're nobody. That's what they were telling him. You don't have any messianic credentials. And so Matthew looks all the way back through all this confusion regarding Christ's origin. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes down the beginnings of Jesus Christ. So that, you know what, if you study that out, there's never any question about who Christ is. And where he came from and who he claimed to be and who he was. There's an emphasis in the genealogy that basically says Jesus Christ is a king like, un, unlike any other king. He's the only one. And he isn't a king who rules by law. We're going to find out next week he's a king who rules by grace. That was really part of his downfall. They thought the king was going to come and deliver him from Rome and do all this. And God came, Jesus Christ came with a gracious hand. <coughs> and as we look at this further next week, it just kind of unfolds to us. And uh, we're going to look at four women who are listed in this genealogy. And what a graceful thing it was for God to put their names in there because they, they weren't the, the top four of the country. They were kind of the lower, the lower women of the day. And yet God in His grace reached out and, and uh, included them in Christ's genealogy. Let's close in a word of prayer. And Father, we thank You that, Lord, Your Word is true and that we can focus in on details of your word that, that prove your very word, that prove what you say is true. Lord, we pray that this morning as we've looked at this list of names, Lord, truly you had a purpose in putting that in the, the Gospel of Matthew, especially as its audience was mainly Jewish. But Lord, I... 
can't help to think that there may be someone here this morning who has yet to recognize your Son, Jesus Christ, as King, as Lord of their life. Lord, we live in an age of grace right now, and it's very important to understand that the invitation is open. That you open your 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 salvation is open to all who would would just graciously bow their knee and admit who you are and admit their need for a savior. Lord, I've seen it time and time again where you come into somebody's life and you make all the the pain and the turmoil and the the problems they don't go away, but you give them the strength to deal with them. And eventually they do go away and they find peace. But Lord, more than that, that you provide salvation from our sin. We could never do that on our own. There's nothing we could ever do. There's no church we could ever attend. There's no baptism that we could ever perform that would save us from our sins. Only by your grace. And Lord, it's through that grace that we have victory in Christ. And we proclaim that this morning. Father, as believers, I pray that we would take seriously your word. I pray that you take, we would take seriously our fellowship together as believers. Lord, that we have a partnership in Christ, one with another. And Lord, I pray that we would, as the holidays near, Lord, I ask that you would protect us, help our priorities to be in order, help our time to be one that honors you. And, and Lord, it's so easy this time of year to get all crazy and just get all mixed up and everything. And Father, we pray that you would uh, minister to us, show us uh, what we need to be involved in, what we don't. And Lord, we rely on you for your direction in our lives. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.